You don't even like sports. Welcome to You Don't Even Like Sports, a podcast about sports for people who don't like sports. With your hosts, Adam Todd Brown and Jeff May. Hey, Adam. Hey, hey, what, Jeff? You don't even like sports. What? That's what I was going to say to you. I was going to tell you that you don't like sports. No, 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 no. You are the one who does not even like sports. It says so right on the al- right on the cover, right on the the album cover. That's not a thing that that's, we have. That we don't have an album cover. Title of show. Things are going great. Yeah. Um. My brain has melted. It happens. That's the end of, that's the, end of the show. Thanks uh, everyone for listening. Tony Stewart mur- killed a guy. Yeah. Tony Stewart killed a guy and almost died. And you know that's all you really need to know. Almost died, killed a guy. He's like a Johnny Cash song. I mean, that's kind of appropriate for what we're talking about today. We are talking about some death by vehicle. Vehicular standard. But this is like getting killed by a vehicle. Right. Or or a wall. We're talking about the death of Dale Earnhardt, which is yeah. does kind of build to a pretty important detail about Tony Stewart and what kind of driver he is. Yeah, we didn't shift away from... Well, what we were talking about, I think, more importantly, is we're talking about the uh, Daytona 500 from February 8th, 2001, because it it encapsulates a lot about the sport, about several of the biggest stars in NASCAR, and of course, one of the most... uh, the biggest sports tragedies of the 2000s. Arguably one of the biggest tragedies of 2001. I'd say the biggest... Yeah, probably. Yeah. I mean, it's top three, if nothing else. I think the VMAs were pretty shitty that year, too. And what the death of Dale Earnhardt also kind of ties into as it pertains to Tony Stewart is that kind of rebel attitude that people really love about Tony Stewart, where he's kind of a throwback to the the old days of racing, like the Dale Earnhardt days, basically. I mean, Dale Earnhardt, it's, it's funny because when you look at Dale Earnhardt as a driver, he was like everybody's favorite asshole at the time. He was like an old school, like his nickname was the Intimidator for a reason. He was kind of a bastard on the track. And to be successful in NASCAR, you kind of have to be like, that's part of it. It's like being a successful boxer. Like not only can you, do you have to punch well, but you have to be willing to try to kill somebody. That's kind of one of the defining details of this story that we're talking about today is that, idea that because someone like Tony Stewart or someone like Dale Earnhardt not only had this presence off the track, but Tony Stewart and Dale Earnhardt had that presence on the track also. Like that was the attitude they brought with them when they raced. And people really craved that out of NASCAR drivers because it's it's dangerous and people love danger. And we'll talk about it more at the end, but in a lot of ways that contributes to Dale Earnhardt's death. Yeah, the daringness of driving 180 miles an hour surrounded by concrete and other hundred and other bullets filled with people. Like that's fucking bananas, man. Yeah, and before we can even talk about the Daytona 500, we have to talk about restrictor plates, which without getting too mechanicy, I'm not a fucking car guy anyway. I don't you don't have to worry about things veering off in that direction for me. Yeah. We are not this is not the show. This is we're not a couple of grease monkeys being like, Yeah, let's talk about cars. <laughs> no. I don't think I, I don't think any one of us has had a has a, had a car that wasn't considered 
practical. Yeah. Uh, both of our cars were purchased from rental places. Yeah. So, Stupidly. <laughs> yes, indeed. So without getting too mechanic-y, those are basically a device you install on the engine of a car to limit its power. Mechanic-y. Yeah, that's a word. You can, you, you can tell that we are not those people. <laughs> and it involves the carburetor. I think they drill a hole in the carburetor and that air intake coming through that hole slows the car down. And they mandated the use of restrictor plates following this insane crash that happened in 1987 at the Winston 500 at Talladega. The Winston 500, baby. <laughs> smoke them if you Light got up em. a smoky Winston and take out a crowd. This is fucking horrifying, by the way. It is. And I remember this happening. Like, I would have been 11 when it happened, 10 or 11. And this was in NASCAR's chain link fence around the track era of protecting fans. It's like wearing floaties in the ocean. You're like, that's not the thing that's going to be the issue. It really is. Like, they had these guardrails up, but there was still just, like, so the car isn't going to fly into the crowd unless it goes in at the right angle, of course. Which it almost does. Right. This crash that happens at the 1987 Winston 500, Bobby Allison's car lifted off the ground and basically skidded along this chain link fence that was the last line of defense between the spectators and a really cool death. Yeah, it, it was almost a decapitation machine. Like yeah. it was so brutal. When you look at like you look at it and you kind of like have to like look at it through through like you know, squinted eyes because it's just you're, you're just like someone's going to get their fucking head taken off by a good year. You know? And there were there were spectators who were injured for sure. He took out a hundred foot section of that fence. And there were people sitting right behind it. So there's going to yeah. be shrapnel and all kinds of shit. I can't imagine who's like, we're going to the NASCAR race front row. Yeah. Like who's getting front row seat? That's going to be the, the cheapest ticket. <laughs> the cheapest ticket at NASCAR should be the front row seats. Because like there's a good chance you're going to get decapitated by a car coming at you 190 miles an hour. Yeah. And NASCAR wanted that to not happen. They wanted their driver's cars to not fly off into the stands kill your fans you cowards right what other sports God. doing that Get baseball it. sometimes i would like to see ron artest behind the wheel of one of those things he'll drive it right <laughs> up eight rows so nascar wanting to prevent stuff like this in the future started mandating the use of restrictor plates at their super speedways which are daytona and talladega and a lot of drivers really hated this, and they had a hard time adjusting. It would be like saying, okay, you know, when you're doing, it would be like putting parachutes on a football player. Oh, they yeah. can still move, but it's just going to be a little harder. Yeah, and, little and I, I understand, uh, as an expert driver myself, the frustration that must come with not being able to drive your car as fast as you know it can go. For me, 74 miles an hour before the yeah. wheels fall off. Adam Adam lives his life one quarter mile at a time. So Exactly. Yeah. You know, it's think of it, I guess it's the good example is is helmets and hockey. When they were mandated to have helmets and hockey and everyone was like, fuck this. And they were like, All right, well, if you're if you're around now, eh, uh, you don't have to wear one. But uh, you know, you should. It was kind of that uh that vibe where they were like, We don't want to wear helmets. And they're like, Helmets will have you killed less. And like, yeah. we don't fucking care. 
Yeah, and you see that with every sport. Whenever any kind of safety change is implemented, a lot of people get mad about the, the fact that the sport isn't what it used to be. It's the pussification of America, man. Look at what happened when they were like, hey, you can't murder quarterbacks at their knees anymore. And people were like, what, what the fuck? What, yeah. what the fuck? It's like, well, they're not looking. Yeah. I really don't miss those days. Like, if you miss the days when playing in the NFL, like, it's still dangerous. But I've been watching the NFL since the 80s. I've seen people literally lose the use of their entire body or the lower half of their body. People used to get paralyzed in the NFL all the time. And then they implemented safety changes that kind of fixed it. And like, don't worry, they're still going to kill themselves. Right. It'll just That's be still suicide. Gonna happen. Yeah. They're, they're still going to sh- murder themselves because of the massive amount of CTE. Don't worry, football fans. They're still going to die for you. Exactly. Okay. I know it's important to you that your athletes fucking die or get hurt horribly. You do like sports, and that's why you want to see your athletes killed. (laughs) And so one of the most vocal opponents of restrictor plates was Dale Earnhardt. In a New York Times article shortly after the 2000 Daytona 500, Dale Earnhardt said this about restrictor plates. They took NASCAR Winston Cup racing and made it some of the sorriest racing. They took racing out of the hands of the drivers and the crews. We can't adjust and make our cars drive like we want. They just killed the racing at Daytona. This is a joke to have to race like this. Well, Dale, don't worry about it. It's not going to be an issue for much longer. Yeah. Well, actually, for him, he got a couple of, he got 14 years out of it. What do you mean? Well, it's 1987 is when the restrictor plate thing happened, right? Yes. Or, or was it so? And he died in 2001. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I don't know what year the restrictor plate thing actually went into effect, to be fair. Yeah, well, it, it went into effect after that race in 87. So, yeah, they he had like... He got a fortnight of years. Yeah, people had had time to deal with restrictor plates. And if I remember reading correctly, there was one team that just kept winning when restrictor plates were really a thing. And that's when Dale Earnhardt starts bitching about it. And basically NASCAR implements a bunch of changes in response to criticism like this from Dale Earnhardt and these changes what they did is they introduced this aerodynamics package for cars at Talladega and Daytona which were intended to keep cars bunched together but also to allow more frequent passing at high speeds what a weird add-on to have for just two very specific races I think these are the two fastest tracks well well, they are yeah that's the that's the point, right? That's, yeah. That's why they had to be like, we need to put these restrictor plates on there. So right. it is interesting that you modify, because I think a lot of us are thinking that you just go with the same car to every race. Yeah, I think that's one of the misconceptions about yeah. NASCAR that we talked about on the, it's not even a bonus episode. We put it out for free. The episode about whether NASCAR drivers are athletes. Like so much goes into these cars. Like it's science. It is science. And like, we are car science people so we know we are scientists we're podcast scientists we're, we're masters co- of the science of podcasts yeah we're so, and we're also mechanics right we try not to advertise too much about that but we aren't know a lot about cars we know so much about cars adam ask me a question about cars uh what's what's a car i know the answer to that i'll tell you later Thank, wow that? that's impressive that I is am impressive <laughs> fucking 
You know, you, you, what can I say? Speaking of impressive, the first time Dale Earnhardt used that new car with the fancy new aerodynamics package, yeah, he passed 17 cars within four laps to win at Talladega in 2000. Hey, wow. What Got an what you wanted, pal. What an impressive feat, and I look forward to seeing many more like it in the future for you, Dale. It would be the last victory of his career. Oh, okay, yeah. I just realized the date is very close to the next date, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So the next next important race is the 2001 Daytona 500, which took place on February 18th. And this is, for the majority of the race, it's very... Uh, it's a good race. It's like routine. if you, yeah, if you read reviews of it, which NASCAR fans do the same thing fucking wrestling fans do and like write reviews of their dramas that they watch on the weekends. So uh, the race initially went really well. There were only two caution flags for the first three quarters of the race. It's really impressive. Actually, that's smooth as shit. Yeah, that is going especially well, but then lap one, seven, three happens. And that's when Robbie Gordon turned into driver Ward Burton at the exit of turn two. Burton then hit Tony Stewart. Stewart, I, I assume you've watched this crash. This thing is bananas. This this crash is something that when you look at it, you're like, Jesus Christ, everybody should be dead from this. Yeah, there's there's no reason for Tony Stewart to have not died in this race. It it is fascinating when you see accidents in NASCAR and like there's a lot of rolling, a lot of going off the fucking ground, man. His car flies. Yeah, it's all the things you associate with people dying in a car accident. Yeah, like if this was if this happened in like in like the real world, like 30 people would have died. Right, which speaks to I mean even the safety changes that NASCAR had put in place by this point that Tony Stewart didn't die is like his car in this wreck. When he gets hit by Ward Burton, his car, the first thing it does is go airborne flips over a car driven by Jeff Gordon and then lands on another car's roof. At that point it flips twice and then lands on and hooks onto the hood of Bobby Labonte's car. And then it skids upright on its front wheels and then comes to a stop in the infield on fire. This is like a, a Fast and the Furious action scene. It's the kind of thing you'd see in a movie and be like, they wouldn't survive that. Yeah, I'm, I'm surprised The Rock didn't come out and beat the shit out of that car. <laughs> or fly out of that car and hit somebody as they were trying to put out the fire. Yeah, it was like it looks like a movie thing. And then what happens next is Ward Burton's car turns again and... 18 other cars all are taken out of the race by this one wreck involving Tony Stewart. Which you th- you would think now 18 cars being eliminated from a, from a race means that the field has cleared up. Right. You know, that the, that the, you know, you hate to say it because you don't want to refer to any person this way, but the chaff has been removed and it's going to be a lot more smooth sailing. But yeah. here's the thing, Adam, is that's not what's going to happen. Adam, Tony Stewart was was pretty much fine from this like he's fine he had he went to the hospital with shoulder discomfort yeah which i have now yeah i have it from sitting on my couch weird it's got a high armrest oh my god 
so this this crazy crash happens. Tony Stewart just has shoulder discomfort. If you watch it, you'll assume Tony Stewart died. But after this crash, they issue a red flag, which means the race is basically stopped so they can clean the wreckage up. And in the middle of this red flag, Dale Earnhardt has a conversation with a guy named Richard Childress, who was the owner of the car Dale Earnhardt was driving. That's a weird detail. It's a weird conversation to be having, too. It's a weird conversation, but also just a a quirky detail. Dale Earnhardt was driving a car owned by Richard Childress, and Michael Waltrip and Dale Earnhardt Jr. were driving cars owned by Dale Earnhardt. So Dale Earnhardt had someone else drive his cars and then drove someone else's car. Well, I think that, yeah, that probably has the team aspect to it. Yeah. You know, the way those teams work. And he is like, I would like to bring my own cars into the team. And Childress is probably like, yeah, fine. Yeah. That's that's just a, a higher revenue opportunity for, for Childress. Yeah, especially with someone a, like Dale Earnhardt at the time. Yeah, yeah. And probably knowing that Earnhardt was going to, his plan was to become an owner, like a Joe Gibbs style owner eventually anyway. Yeah. That didn't happen though. It did not happen. Because he's going to die. And during this red flag... Dale Earnhardt and Richard Childress have a conversation, and Dale Earnhardt says this, Richard, if they don't do something to these cars, it's going to end up killing somebody. Dun, dun, dun. Spoiler alert. It, it's it's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be you, Dale. It's, it's, yeah, it's you're the one that's going to get killed gonna by be Dale the cars. Yeah. That dies. I'm sorry. Yeah. I hope people knew that going in, but yes. if not, we just gave it away. Yes. Now- Here's the thing is that they his team is Michael Waltrip and Dale Jr. And they're driving his cars. And then he like you said, he's driving the, the children's. Um and they were doing really well as a team. Yeah. They were doing so well that Dale Earnhardt thought they could go into this race and finish one, two, three, which is very impressive thing to do as a team. And the only driver that they were concerned with was a driver named Sterling Marlin who drove the number 40 car. Is he a spy? Because he sounds like a spy. The only person to look out for is Sterling Martin. Yeah, you hear that name and you assume he's going to be whipping by in a a Jaguar. (laughs) Like an Aston Martin or something. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, no, if you you look at his picture, he's a fucking redneck too. Yeah, the crew's all wearing tuxedos. (laughs) We've added a laser keychain onto you. (laughs) And sure enough... When the race restarts on lap 180, Waltrip and Junior were one and two, and Senior, Dale Earnhardt Sr., was in third and blocking Sterling Marlin's attempts to pass. So for the remainder, or, or for the next few laps, things go that way. It's it's Waltrip and Dale Earnhardt Jr. kind of trading back and forth in the lead. Dale Earnhardt Sr. is in third. And Sterling Marlin is in fourth, trying to pass. And as Fox commentator Daryl Waltrip put it, with just a couple laps left, Sterling had beat the front end off of that old Dodge, just trying to get around Dale Earnhardt Sr. Man. So let's find out if he gets around him. In Spoiler alert. <laughs> yes, but with an asterisk. Yeah, big asterisk. In turn four of the final lap, Earnhardt made what looked like relatively light contact with Sterling Marlin's car and slid off course. And when he tried to regain control and turn back onto the track, he was hit by the car driven by Ken Schrader and then 
ran into the wall. And here's the thing. If you look at the Tony Stewart crash and watch this crash, you would assume no one died in this crash. Yeah, it looks kind of like a like a bump. Yeah, it looks like a fender bender. Yeah, when he when he hits it. And even after he hits the wall, his car gets dragged down into the infield by the car who hit him, which was driven by Ken Schrader. And even then, they're the only two that are involved in the crash. Moments later, Michael Waltrip wins. Dale Earnhardt Jr. comes in second. And I don't think anyone watching it at the time thought anything was amiss. No, especially after you just saw a cataclysmic accident where nobody was injured when they left. Right. Or nobody that we talked about in here was injured. I can't speak for all 18 cars, but I feel like nobody, I feel like we would have known about a, a, a massive injury. No, there weren't any major injuries from that crash. And to give you an idea how minor this crash looked, Daryl Waltrip, who we mentioned earlier, was uh, doing the commentary for Fox. He's Michael Waltrip's brother. And he was so worked up over his brother winning the Daytona 500. He starts fucking crying in the commentator booth. And he's like weeping tears of joy. And he says his first... That's actually because he knew Dale was dead. (laughs) That's why he, he did that. He says his first thought was, wow, Dale is going to be really mad that the race ended that way and that he didn't have a chance to finish third. He's got other things to worry about. <laughs> he sure did. After both of the cars came to a stop, Ken Schrader jumps out and runs over to check on Dale Earnhardt and almost immediately starts motioning for paramedics to come over which reminded me a whole lot of the Lawrence Taylor, Joe Feisman thing. That's what I was thinking too. Exactly that. Because yeah. you saw Taylor and he's like pulling, he's like, get the get the fuck in here. And it's a very similar vibe. It's funny that you said that because that's the exact vibe that I got. Well, that's such a, did you see that happen live? No, I was actually going to mention it when we were talking about the um, football injuries earlier. Mm. Yeah, I, I was watching it live. I was watching Monday Night Football when that happened and if, People who aren't familiar, Joe Theismann got tackled by, he was a quarterback for the Washington football team. Uh, They were still racist back then. And he gets, he's quarterback and he gets tackled by Lawrence Taylor, who is 90% cocaine. He's a cocaine and a chainsaw. Right. Mixed together. He cuts him in half. He really does. And the way Joe Theismann's leg bends. And I... I've seen the tape of it, of that video. They show that thing 30 times during yeah. Monday Night Football. Yeah. And the minute Lawrence Taylor hit him, he jumped up and started calling for paramedics because it was just so obvious. Yeah. He's like, I need this to stay to assault and not go up to manslaughter. So you all <laughs> need to help me out here. Yeah. Joe Theismann was walked with a cane for the rest of his career. Imagine a 280 pound stack of muscle vibrating on cocaine, plowing his body into the lower half of you as hard as he can. While you're wearing cleats. Yeah. So that foot's just get a firm, Just get a, get a firm spot right in the ground. He did. And it, his leg just folds in half at the knee. It's, it's like watching, uh, watching people hit a mailbox with a baseball bat. Like that's, that's the, the sort of visual equivalent that you get from it. Oof. It, it was harsh. And... So when Ken Schrader runs over and checks on Dale Earnhardt, he immediately starts doing the same thing. And it took him 10 years, but he did eventually admit that when he went up to the car, he knew 
Dale Earnhardt was dead. Was right he waiting away. for the anniversary? Well, I mean, he it's he hard probably to admit, I guess just didn't want to talk about it. Like in yeah. retrospect, he says at the time he didn't want to be the one to say Dale Earnhardt is dead because he's not a doctor, and like Dale Earnhardt's kid just finished the race in second second place, and so like I kind of understand why he wouldn't want to be the one to snap to that judgment. Yeah. Hey, man, congratulations. Real quick. <laughs> I got to tell you something real quick. Let's talk about your dad. And But yeah, here's a quote. Here's the deal. When I went up to the car, I knew. I knew he was dead. I didn't want to be the one who said Dale is dead. And because it's the Daytona 500 and there are cameras everywhere, uh, if you're looking to bum yourself out today, there is lots of really heartbreaking footage of Dale Earnhardt Jr., literally sprinting to the medical area to find out what happened to his dad. Yeah, that's heartbreaking because at, at the time he had a very young career. And so you're looking at somebody who is at a career highlight, you know, second place in the Daytona 500 in support of your teammate is huge. Yeah. And his dad was still very young. Like his Dale Earnhardt Sr. was 49 when yeah, he died. He was, yeah, I was going to say he was almost 50, right? Yeah. yeah. So Drivers he, last a while. Yeah, he probably had a few years ahead of him, too. And, you know, he and his son had a few years racing ahead of them. Yeah. And unfortunately, as it turns out, what happened during that crash was he died instantly when his car hit the wall. Which his, is crazy that that's what did it. I know. and But it makes sense when you find out, like, like he almost gets two impacts at once. Because he hits the wall right at the same time he gets hit by that other car that's also going hundreds of miles an hour. And as we get into the investigation behind it, like there was nothing supporting his head or his neck. Yeah. And so his cause of death was blunt force trauma to the head, which caused a fatal basilar skull fracture. Having that blunt force trauma. (laughs) He was high, baby. Yeah, he was. 420, baby. Actually, no, that just means his skull fractured somewhere near the base. Yeah, that's really awful, actually. It's a terrible thing that happened. Yeah, he he died. This is so fucking crazy. The force exerted on his head during the crash was equivalent to a vertical drop from a height of 61.8 feet. That seems like it would be bad. That would, yeah, just if if you're listening to this at home, Imagine you're standing 60 feet in the air and you just fall and land directly on your head. Yeah, no, there's no there's no living through no, that. That's that's what happened to Dale Earnhardt inside that car. I was going to say it really there there was uh, a malfunction, right? It was a there was a technical I know we are both mechanics. We are so mechanics. We can talk yes. about this. And uh, it was investigated, right? And they found that there was something faulty. Well, there were That becomes a really important detail. There were two investigations. NASCAR, initially, five days after the crash happens, they came out and announced that Dale Earnhardt's seatbelt either broke or malfunctioned in some way during the crash. And this led to a couple of things. One, speculation that he would have survived if that malfunction didn't happen. And also death threats made against a guy named Bill Simpson, who was the founder of Simpson Performance Products, the company that manufactured the seatbelts. So so you're thinking, murder the guy because a faulty thing exists. Which is, right. cra- it's crazy what people will make a death threat for. Yeah, especially something like this. Like, 
Sterling Marlin also got death threats, and that seems oh. a little more yeah he bumped reasonable the because there's I mean he there's killed al- him so well there's yeah. always there's always going to be that debate of did he bump Dale Earnhardt on purpose like generally speaking yes right but not to send him flying into a wall right and even if like that's not usually how that ends. But at this point in NASCAR history, there had been, I think, three drivers died the year before. So they, despite having put these safety changes in place, things were not going well. So Sterling Marlin stops getting death threats after Dale Earnhardt Jr. basically tells people to stop. And it's like, he didn't do it on purpose. In a Mountain Dew commercial, which was weird. Yeah, but I mean... Go to your audience, I guess. If you have the chance to do the do, you're going to do it. Yeah, you he's know. like, hey, man, do the do. Also, leave Sterling Marlin alone, man. He didn't kill my dad. <laughs> Obey your thirst. Oh, that's Spratt. Sorry. So Bill Simpson, on the other hand, had to wait a little bit longer for his death threats to go away because uh, for a long time, NASCAR really stuck to this argument that the seatbelt failed. And what Bill Simpson argued was that it didn't fail. It was installed in an improper way so as to maximize Dale Earnhardt's comfort. He's a 15-year-old man. He needs to be comfortable while he's driving. And it turns out that was probably true. A lot of people around Earnhardt have confirmed that. But what's even more interesting is that it didn't matter. The (laughs) seatbelt isn't what killed him, probably, because... He was poisoned. Yeah, by Russia. It's Vladimir Putin. Eventually, a judge appointed Dr. Barry Myers, who was a crash expert at Duke University to conduct an independent investigation, which is short for investigation, saves me time when I talk. And his conclusion was that Earnhardt died as a result of his inadequately restrained head and neck snapping forward, independent of the seatbelt. And several other doctors jumped on board shortly thereafter in agreement with Meyer's findings. I would say that's probably correct, as an expert myself. When the options are a doctor versus NASCAR... I'm going to side with the doctor. Yeah, never d- never agree with a sport that investigates itself. It's like believing the police when they're like, we didn't find anything wrong. You're like, well, they investigated it. And speaking of that, on the same day that Dr. Myers released his report, NASCAR released another report of their own. And in their report, they blamed a combination of the angle that Dale Earnhardt hit the wall, the impact with Schrader, and the separation of the seatbelt as being the contributing factors to his death. And also determined that they could not determine if a head and neck support device would have saved Earnhardt's life. It's a very Aristotle way of going at it. They're like, we've determined that we can't determine this. Right. Which even like their argument, how, how would that lead to blunt force trauma to the head? Like, you'd think there'd be some chest injury. He might have flown out the entire car. Ooh, that think. would have been something to see on NBC or whatever. Right? Seeing a 50-year-old man painted against the wall. That's sort of what you would expect with a seatbelt failure. And so this disagreement goes back and forth. Bill Simpson eventually quits his job at the company he founded over the seatbelt debate. And his lawyers at one point asked NASCAR to publicly and unequivocally assert the following. The seatbelts were of high quality in workmanship, and there were no design or manufacturing defects. The belts met the NASCAR rulebook requirements. The belts on Earnhardt's car, as installed, did not conform to manufacturer installation requirements. 
The separation of the lap belt was not a result of design or manufacturing defect, but caused by improper installation, and the belt separation was not the cause of Earnhardt's death. NASCAR NASCAR never responded. Oh, oh, that makes sense. If you can believe that. I mean, NASCAR seems cool. They seem pretty cool. So I don't know why they didn't give in to the... Although I would say these are interesting demands, like the belts were of high quality and worksmanship, and there was no design or manufacturing defects. I would like to see NASCAR text them like, oh, just saw this. Yeah, no one, like no major corporation or company like this is going to, like NASCAR would basically be taking all of the blame in this at this point. Because what the the other thing that that report suggested, the, the Dr. Myers report, was that some sort of head and neck restraint would have possibly prevented Dale Earnhardt's death. Mm-hmm. And at first, NASCAR really stuck to their guns when it came to that. And they refused to mandate that drivers wear them. Except by that point, it seems like most of the drivers had already decided the Myers report was the more trustworthy source. Because two days before NASCAR's final report was issued, 41 of 43 drivers at the Pepsi 400 wore some sort of head and neck restraint device. You know... You would think, too, that there's going to be a strong showing of safety from the people that were the most affected by this. Oh, Jeff, you would think so. But let's talk about Dale Earnhardt Jr. Let's. Why not? He was somehow one of the holdouts one of for the two a long time. Holdouts. I mean, it feels like the Pepsi 400 is also not Daytona. Right. But the accident that happened at Daytona could happen yeah, anywhere. And... This was a quote from Dale Earnhardt Jr. at the time. It's something my fellow drivers asked me to wear. And I think when guys like that speak up, it's something you ought to take notice to. Okay. Yeah, good job, Dale. That's smart. Or how about the doctors who said that's how your dad died? Yeah, how about the funeral? Did they mention that at the funeral? They were wearing those head restraints at the funeral. (laughs) They lowered him down. He was in one of those restraints. Jeff, I'm going to give you the name of one of the drivers at that Pepsi 400 who was among the two still not wearing okay. a head and neck device. I'm looking forward to this. Jimmy Spencer okay, is one yeah, of them. That tracks. Jimmy Spencer, you know, he, he's, a, he's a wild card sometimes. Can you guess the second driver? Well, it can't be Dale Earnhardt Jr. because he was a holdout and then he switched. I'm going to guess, was it Tony Stewart? Jeff, you're right. Oh my God, get the H out of town. Can you believe it? Tony Stewart at the yeah. Pepsi 400 was one of the two drivers who refused to wear a head or neck restraint. I believe it. Also, as a side note, Dale Earnhardt Jr. was only 26 years old uh, at the time of this race when everything Damn. happened. And you kind of got to be like, all right, well, at least he's tw- he's like, you know, not going for it. And you're like, okay, well, you're young. You're, you're 26. Nobody in their 20s has made a good decision. So, yeah, okay, I get it. But at least he listened to other people. And Tony Stewart, who was roughly close to that age, um, was just like, fuck you. <laughs> Yeah, he actually cited claustrophobia as the reason he couldn't use a device because there were two devices. There was the Hans device, Mm H-A-N-S, and that's basically a gigantic foam neck pillow that you you put around your neck while you're racing. Sounds great. Yeah, very. you could take a nap, just turning left after all. And then there's the Hutchins device, which consisted of a series of straps and buckles. A belt that you could... Yeah, presumably named after the former lead singer of NXS. But who, who died choking. Right. On belt. Get it? Bounce. So, 
<laughs> gonna die in a car wreck. <laughs> so <laughs> not long after the Pepsi 400, Jimmy Spencer finally started using one of the two devices, leaving Tony Stewart as the lone holdout. And this is what he said about the Hans device. I ran one lap, pulled in and bailed out of the car because I felt like I was getting trapped inside the car. It was because of my own anxiety that comes from being claustrophobic. That's how the Hans device makes me feel. And can you be claustrophobic and a NASCAR driver? I was going to be like, you can't get out of the car anyway. Yeah. Like the, the neck pillow, if you're claustrophobic, like you can't even move in a NASCAR vehicle. Yes, yeah, a little basically. snug. Yeah. But as for the Hutchins device, he tried one of those out. And I feel like I'm on Team Stewart here. He questioned how effective they were after he tried it in a practice. And each time the people responsible for putting it on him, each of the three times they put it on, they attached it a completely different way. So he was like, what is even the point? Like, does anyone know how to use this thing? Yeah, that's weird, right? But I mean, finally, we could do it. We could do it, you and I, because we are. We're car guys. We're car guys, and we could figure out the Hans device like nothing. Yeah, that's actually the Hutchins device. But Yeah, but I mean, we could figure both out. As a car guy, you know that. I do. I know both of those things. That's why I was going to the other thing. And finally, in October 2001, since we had nothing else to worry about, NASCAR mandated the use of a Hans or a Hutchins device during races, and Tony Stewart was forced to comply. It's the, wah, it's wah, the American wah. way, man. You don't want to let the terrorists win, man. Keep that head firm. <laughs> and here's the thing. That doesn't mean he was completely wrong about these devices, especially the Hutchins device. In 2002, Dale Earnhardt Jr. suffered a concussion and blurred vision after a crash while wearing the device. Okay, but so what? Like, you're going to get into a crash. Like, it's not going to protect you forever. It's not perfect. Right. But it's, it's still, like, it's, NASCAR did eventually ban this device because it oh, did well, not okay. work. <laughs> uh, later yeah. that same year, Sterling Marlin suffered chest injuries in a crash at Richmond and then fractured a vertebrae. At the Kansas Speedway, both while wearing a Hutchins device. That is some final destination shit right there. Yeah. I hope Michael Waltrip wasn't using one of these. Yeah. Big, big number eight. Last thing he saw. <laughs> and NASCAR finally banned this device in 2005. And by that point, the only driver still using the Hutchins device was fucking Tony Stewart, baby. What the fuck, man? What the fuck? <laughs> you got to be that much of an asshole? He does. Like, that's he just really something does. where you're like, okay, now you're being an asshole on purpose. Yeah, it's like, well, I mean, if the claustrophobia thing is real, I don't know, because that, there were arguments about that Hans device that if you're a shorter driver, it was fine. But if you were a taller driver, then you're already scrunched into this car and you have this huge neck pillow thing. But also, you're not going to die from driving into the wall at the wrong angle. So you, yeah. you pick your battles, I guess. Yeah, I mean, being tall is not great when you have to fit into stuff. It's generally and, great when you're, like, standing places, but that's pretty much it. And I think Tony Stewart is kind of tall, probably. Yeah. He better be to be that much of an asshole. Yeah, what's he, he's 5'9", actually. Oh, so, so no, he's my height. That's, yeah. He's not tall. So he's tiny and worthless. I'm sorry, so what he did actually you say? has what no. He, he actually had no reason to not wear the Hans device. He's claustrophobic. Out. Yeah. Well, he's sure. a massive claustrophobic. <laughs> You know, that's like a guy who's saying that he doesn't have to wear a mask because he can't breathe in it. Yeah. I can't drive this NASCAR thing with another thing in it. I'm claustrophobic. It's like, but you were driving before that. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's it's a weird excuse, but eventually the Hutchins device it gets banned by NASCAR. But in 2007, they just make another one, a hybrid version that was approved by NASCAR. So it was kind of a temporary hitch. And I'm assuming Tony Stewart just uses that now. And in a really weird, unfortunate twist for Bill Simpson, the guy who got all these death threats over his company's seatbelts, which allegedly failed when Dale Earnhardt Sr. died, that company that he left, Simpson Performance Products, Mm -hmm. eventually bought both of the companies that make the Hans device and the Hutchins device. But by this time, Bill Simpson had nothing to do with them, so he didn't get to benefit in that at all, which ain't that always the way. Also, when he left Simpson Performance Products, he started a company called Impact Racing Products. Uh, yeah, that seems like not a good look. <laughs> that is a, and it's impact in all caps with an exclamation point. Yeah, come on, buy some stuff from Reaper Racing. <laughs> Like, I mean, that is what drove him to have to start a new company, I guess. So, and like this all kind of raises the question of that we talked about at the beginning. There's a really interesting article that went up just a few days after Dale Earnhardt died. It was written by a slate writer named Seth Stevenson, and it's got a pretty compelling title. The title is I Killed Dale Earnhardt. Arrest this man. And it's... It's a really interesting read because it's about how all of the conditions, all those rule changes we talked about that made for faster passing and for cars to be bunched up, those are all things NASCAR fans wanted. Like they wanted racing to be the way it used to be. And when NASCAR put all these changes that fans and Dale Earnhardt wanted in place, they got what they wanted and Dale Earnhardt died. So... It's kind of the same thing as like when people argue about like, oh, why can't you just close line quarterbacks anymore? It's like because the, they're they're the least protected well, the, once you get past their line of protection. Yeah, the other part of that is why do you need that? Right. Like why do you as a fan need that? What is it about the sport that you need where you need to see people get crippled and their lives ruined just because they make money? Yeah, it's a it's a very toxic version of fandom. That, you shouldn't even like sports. Yeah, you don't deserve to like sports. But the, I'll, we'll link to all of these articles, but it's it's a pretty short article, but that's basically his argument is did this kind of toxic need for danger and the possibility of injury in sports kind of lead to Dale Earnhardt's death? And I don't, I mean, yeah, but also Dale Earnhardt, That was what they wanted from Dale Earnhardt. Like, he died having what he loved done to him, which was someone on his tail driving really aggressively trying to get past him. That's why he's the intimidator. This this is a reminder, too, of like, there are certain toxic aspects of sports that I still like, and it's a lot of the self-regulation, predominantly in baseball and hockey, where, you know, in baseball, it's, you know, Houston Astros are going to get beaned by pitchers because they cheated to win and you're throwing a ball 95 miles an hour at a person and we're like fucking a yeah man or in hockey when it's just like fucking beating the shit out of each other i love that i love hockey fights but i don't think they should probably exist oh no definitely not but i love it it yeah and it's i mean you like we said in the beginning you see it in all sports there's this desire for sports to be really dangerous and harmful and it's like that's how you lose your sports like yeah 
And it's interesting to look back on that day and see what happened to Tony Stewart. And more importantly, what didn't happen to Tony Stewart and what that's going to mean for the sport going on about the validity of different kinds of impact and how something that looks like a complete and total cataclysm is relatively safe. You know, Tony Stewart went ass over tea kettle, hit like a million cars and then landed inside the middle of the track on fire. And was fine. And he was like, man, man, this is fucking crazy, right? And Dale Earnhardt got into a fucking fender bender. And he's like, well, I'm dead as shit. Yeah. And which is weird to say that, but you know, I mean, sometimes with, you gotta go out, you gotta say the right thing. And with as much complaining as people did about these safety changes that NASCAR put in place, like NASCAR did do a lot after Dale Earnhardt died. They, for one thing, they basically just uh, invented a whole new type of car called the car of tomorrow that uh, cost less to maintain. It made for closer competition and had all these dramatic safety improvements built in. And they've since improved on that and replaced it also. Hmm. And to this day, knock on wood, there have been no deaths in NASCAR series races since Dale Earnhardt died. And if you want to see an example of how much of a difference those safety changes have made, Look at Ryan Newman's crash from the 2020 Daytona 500. His crash was pretty much exactly like Dale Earnhardt's. Yeah, pretty goddamn close. Especially in the way he hits the wall. And he was fucked up for sure. Like, he was so fucked up, the doctors had to induce a coma to save his life. And he woke up mid-COVID. Yeah, exactly. He so suffered- what happened? That's some 28 days later shit right there. Yeah, it is. He suffered a brain bruise, among other injuries, has no memory of the crash. His only memory of it is walking out of the hospital with his daughters a few months later. And he credited all these safety changes that were made in his car and a new type of helmet. He was wearing a carbon fiber helmet, which is a thing the NFL has started implementing also. And this was February, right? Yeah. Man, imagine that waking up in May. Going to sleep in February when they're like, got to be careful. A disease is happening. You wake up and be like, what happened with that disease? Oh, man. We can put you back down if you want, but this is bad. <laughs> yeah. Can I just sleep for another six months? Yeah. Cool. Let me see what Let me see what it's like in August. Oh, worse? Cool, cool. Yeah. <laughs> Getting worse still. Interesting. As yeah. long as my daughters are safe in school. I'm sorry, what? <laughs> but yeah, the this crash, if you look at it, it's, I mean, it's pretty much the same as the Dale Earnhardt yeah. crash. And, and it's... It's interesting to talk now about because we have a Tony Stewart themed show that we're doing right now, and there's not a ton of Tony Stewart in here. But this is, you know, you hate to, this. The Dale Earnhardt death is the 9/11 of NASCAR. It is the oh, yeah. it is the major turning point, the keystone event in NASCAR. Everything is is based in NASCAR. Of did it happen before Earnhardt or after Earnhardt? And Tony Stewart, uh, during that crash, during that race, had a phenomenal crash. One one that would have made it, that would have been like a big sports center thing if Dale Earnhardt didn't steal all his thunder. And right. then Tony Stewart's reactions to it kind of highlights how much of an asshole he is. Yeah, it's it's really a keep your eyes on the prize kind of thing. Yeah. It's and- not my fucking problem, man. I didn't die. Yeah, I, I came out and I mean, maybe that no. kind of played into Sorry. it. It's not my fucking problem, man. I didn't die. <laughs> Is that a bad yeah, answer? like it, that that could have had something to do with it, too. Like he did survive what looked like a way crazier wreck, but 
he's got to understand he didn't have any of the same impact that Dale Earnhardt no, got no. during his he went, crash. He went up in the air and then adjusted on roll cages. Yeah, so he's fine. pretty fine. He's fine, Adam. Stop being so worried about him. He will be recovered fast enough to kill a guy later. And that's big. another point where NASCAR puts a bunch of rule changes in place is after Tony Stewart killed yeah. the guy. They add, they have to add a rule and they're like, we didn't think we had to add this rule, but you can't hit human beings with your fucking car. Well, actually the rule was, and I'm sure they were still like, we can't believe we have to add this rule, but don't get out and taunt other cars as they pass you after an accident. That was the rule they had to put in place. Yeah. Because, in, I mean, not in Tony Stewart's defense, but... Get, get back in your car. Like, why yeah. are you taunting a moving car? Yeah, there's two things. There's two aspects to it, which is like, why did you get yourself out there? And then you look at Tony Stewart and like, and then why did you murder that man? Yeah. Not to victim so, blame, but Tony Stewart is the victim. Exactly. I'm sorry, what? As a, as a licensed mechanic, I can tell you that Tony Stewart was right to kill that man on the middle of the NASCAR race. We're car guys. Hey, couple of car guys having car guy opinions. Hey, so... I think that's our episode. That's right? a sode, bruh. We did it. Bruh. Um, bruh. Bruh, 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 bruh. That's a sode. I'm not 100% sure what we're talking about on the next episode, but I feel like we're going to jump into the future a little. Tony Stewart. Are we going to talk because about Tony Stewart? We're three episodes in, and we're still only in the year 2001. And there are years and years and years of Tony Stewart to go. Yeah. And three episodes to cover him. We'll get there. Yeah. Don't you worry. We'll get there. We got Tony. We got you, uh, Tone. T-Stew, as I like to call him. In the meantime, what do we have to plug? Jeff, what do you got to plug? Sideshow Sideshows every other Tuesday through Sideshow Collectibles. Have had some pretty fun and rocking guests recently, and I got some more coming up for you, so you're going to want to check that out through Sideshow Collectibles, available on YouTube and where all podcasts are sold for free. Also, uh, Tom and Jeff Watch Batman is available every Wednesday through Gamefully Unemployed. Me and my man, Tom Ryman, watch and discuss The Batman. Uh, all the things. Batman? The Batman. The Batman. Um, you got this show, which you get, and then also the Unpops main show that I am occasionally uh, a part of. That being said, I got nothing else. Social media, you can find me at Hey Don't. There Jeffro. Don't find me you on can't Facebook. Find him. Leave me alone. You won't be able to find him. All right, let's get out of here. Jeff, say goodbye. Bye. Goodbye, everybody. We love you. Okay, bye.